Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm going to be speaking with Janice Selby. Um, Janice is a psychologist. No, and, just a therapist. Oh, sorry, a therapist. Sorry about that. And okay. But you were born and raised in a Pentecostal home and a very strict Pentecostal home. And you left you left that faith like later on. Mm-hmm. And then now you've now you're working on it as a therapist and you've got uh your website's divorcingreligion.com and that's you have like workshops for people who've left faith and it's dealing with the issues after having left faith yes exactly right and well, so thank you very much mm-hmm. for coming on thank you so yeah i mean if you want to just basically start with that and then we can go from there sure. yeah my uh i'm canadian and i was raised in a, a smallish city in the okanagan valley and my parents definitely were Pentecostal flavor. Um, but I went on to become much more strict than my parents ever were. So we had, we did have a TV in our home. Uh, we had quite a few rules about what we could watch and what we couldn't watch, you know, what we could wear and how we were expected to behave and so forth. Um, my siblings all eventually left the faith. They're older than I am. And I saw each time how much it hurt my own parents when my siblings rejected the faith and I determined never to do that I was the youngest child the golden child so I really worked hard at developing uh, a good relationship with God according to the rules of my church and my faith then I married a man who was destined for the pastorate and it was while we were attending a very conservative Bible college in southern Alberta that I took that dive down the fundamentalist rabbit hole and started wearing a head covering, homeschooling the children, rejecting TV, rejecting the outside world, essentially. Did that for a number of years. Are you, that's one thing, because I'm just recently reading uh, Megan Phelps Roper's book, Unfollow. The first time I became aware of her was uh, the first time she was on Sam Harris's podcast, and that was a couple of years now. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I always find her story very fascinating. It just, it's curious because when you mentioned like the no TV and all that, a lot of strict fundamental, like Abrahamic faiths, you know, like strict Islamic families, you know, Orthodox Jewish families, strict right. Christian families, obviously, they'll ban that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? Um, but yeah, in her house though, even though everyone talks about the West, and I'm not, this is not a defense of the Westboro Baptist Church. Right. But when you read the first chapter, she mentions how all that stuff was allowed. They could listen to whatever music they wanted. They could go to any movies they wanted. And the reason was that look at the evidence of the sin that these awful people are living in. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So as much as I don't, you know, I'm not, like I said, I'm not trying to praise the Westboro Baptist church, <laughs> but that idea there in and of itself, go look at the evidence and see how bad it is. Right. I mean, you've been indoctrinated. You're, you're thinking along a certain way and it's very rigid, but at least you're allowing that challenge. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, like I find, I find that that's so uncommon, like everything else that I've been reading in that up, up to this point, I can recognize the strictness <clears throat> and how you have to adhere. But that one thing was just like, I have to give that some measure of respect. Sorry. I didn't mean to digress into that, but it was just, it, it just no, struck no. me. That's And that's more along the lines of how my um, former husband thought. So the one who was a pastor, yeah. I was much more uh, about uh, protecting 
the children by building all sorts of walls around them. I didn't feel that they, uh, well, I didn't want them to be exposed to or influenced by what I consider to be satanic influences or just plain dangerous influences is how I felt it. And his uh, thinking was different. And this is, you know, can be hard on a marriage when you both have uh, differing views of how to carry something out. And he thought, why not? Why not expose them? Why not let them see, you know, everything that's um, everything that's there? And I just really felt strongly that we needed to have some some boundaries and some rules there. Yeah. No, like I said, I just found that like it's just That is interesting. Yeah. It was just uh, you know everything else was super strict, but that one thing you know uh, her her grandfather was adamant on and that's like I said I just I I give some measure of respect to that. I'm uh, sorry, I didn't mean to like I said interrupt oh, your no. you know, like, That's your, okay. Her yeah, her book. I'm hearing all about her book and actually um Nate Phelps is going to be coming to our conference and speaking at our conference in April. Yeah. So they're yeah. they're a very interesting family, that's for sure. Oh yeah. No, that, that whole <laughs> that whole thing was uh was quite interesting. Um so now like after you left I mean, not only you left your faith, but your marriage broke up and then you were starting completely from scratch again. Now is that what led you to working as a therapist or like what did you like or did you want to do that before you like you know you done the whole separation like how did that progress right yeah i've always been a people person and just someone that people would seek out to talk to everywhere i went didn't matter where i was it's kind of like the bartender people are just gonna come up and <laughs> lay their stuff on you um and so uh, I already had that bent in my personality. Uh, and also there's some, my father is a, is a narcissist. Um, and it made growing up difficult. It made lots of, made for lots of rigidity. Narcissists are often drawn to fundamentalist religion, of course, because then they can have all the control. And so there were some mental health issues in my family that uh, always intrigued me. And so when my marriage ended and my faith ended, it was kind of natural, it seemed, for me to be drawn to the counseling field. And and it was very helpful for me because when you're studying to be a therapist, you have to deal, make sure you're really dealing with your own stuff. You don't want to um, be projecting on your clients Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be really aware of what your stuff is. And I found it cathartic and helpful and exhausting. Uh, and I think it's made me a better therapist. Yeah. I mean, obviously if you're not doing well yourself, you can't help other people. Well, I, mm-hmm. I actually, I guess I, did, I shouldn't say that you might help other people to the detriment of yourself. I mean, there's, there's always that. Yes. Um, and we all have blind spots as well. So I think that's also where um, where it was helpful for me, doing my schooling, really investigating what, what are my blind spots. And I do find this a lot um, in the, the, say, ex-evangelical, if your listeners might be familiar with that idea, people who were evangelical Christians and now they've left, so they've kind of left that fundamentalist view behind. Uh, they may have left 
their fundamentalist religious views behind, but many of them haven't yet been able to leave fundamentalist thinking behind. So they remain quite rigid and black and white in their views. Uh, and this can really kind of play out in what we see or hear as cancel culture, the idea that if you don't exactly fall into line with their views, particularly on social media, um, they're going to wield social media like a club and try and cancel you trying to obliterate you. It's disturbing. Um, I want to just put a pin in that for a second. Uh, okay. But, because you'd mentioned in your bio, like the Pentecostal and the Evangelical. Mm. And then, I mean, I know at one point you said like, Mentecostal because like you were influenced a bit by the Mennonites. But you know, let, let, let's leave the Mennonites aside for a second because it's a little too small. Sure. Yeah, a little sure. too niche there. Um, yeah. Now, Okay, I don't know very much about Pentecostalism. It's, you know, mm -hmm. the speaking in tongues and stuff like that. But it's the evangelical thing that I've always been a little gray on in one one aspect. Like, you can go out and evangelize. You know, Mormons technically go out and evangelize, right? They're spreading. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, if, but, you know, like, the brand of Christianity called evangelicalism you know, like, like the evangelical church, like, because like, I, you know, there's evangelical Baptist, there's, so like, I, like that separation of that, like, so were you an evangelical Pentecostal or was that two separate churches? Like, I, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I've always been a little confused about that. Right. Yeah, it is confusing. Um, in my uh, understanding, all Pentecostal churches would be um, evangelical. They're all, they would all be uh interested in evangelizing or spreading the spreading the gospel okay so could i think of like evangelical as a subcategory of protestant and then underneath that you would have like baptist and pentecostal and i don't know how many other flavors could you I, sort of I think, think that would be i think that would be an appropriate way to look at it and it's not my specialty yeah. Uh, understanding, you know, those sorts of things. But I know that um, I've gone to, I've attended Baptist uh, churches that have been evangelical. Mm -hmm. And to me also, uh, well, of course, my background really is a lot of Pentecostal. So the, the services were very, like, exciting. So not only was the preacher exciting and dynamic and possibly yelling, uh, but the, the music was very exciting and it was high emotion, but that's not the case in all, yeah. in all uh, churches. Yeah, okay, I'm just trying to think of like a general cover. I mean, I, you know, we can go into the nuance of it, but yeah, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, unless you want to. Okay, the, the cancel culture thing. Mm -hmm. Just a bit of a background. I was working um, in war zones and disaster areas from 2002 to end of 2013. I got back to Canada in 2014. Um, so I wasn't around for social media, really, right? They didn't allow it on war, uh, you know, in war zones. They, I mean, the very, very limited access. I mean, it wasn't even around when I left. Right. You know? um, so I didn't had no idea what was going on. And I come back and the world's gone crazy. Mm. And the first thing I think to myself is, you know, What's what's with all the blasphemy laws? Because that's basically what they were, right? You can't say this, you can't say that. Um, was it uh, just? I mean, they're the stupidest things, right? And it's and I'm yes. like, oh my god! And then the world—I mean, everything's turned upside down. Mm -hmm. um, and then, okay, so there was a really good article written in Aereo by uh, uh, James Lindsay, 
and he called it the postmodern faith of social justice. Now, mm. if you take a look at critical race theory, and a lot of times when you hear anti-racism, it's critical race theory. It's like the Calvinist idea of total depravity. The whole system is racism. The whole like so everything is like the whole system is consumed by whiteness. Mm-hmm. So the system in and of itself is sinful, is racist. The system is the racism, right? You cannot um you can't extricate it from it. so it's like the total depravity idea. Mm-hmm. But at least in the Calvinism, through acts, you can gain salvation. Mm-hmm. With with the critical race theory, every act in and of itself is racist in some is racist in one way or another. And even if it isn't, because the whole system is racist and the whole system is sinful, you yourself are consumed by sin no matter what you do. So there is no salvation by acts. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, like I've started reading this stuff in the last year and a bit, year and a half or so. <laughs> and the more I read it, I'm like, okay, take as, as fundamentalist as a person you want, a religious person, right? <laughs> Even if they don't give an ounce of it to anyone, but there is still the idea of redemption and grace and salvation. There is none in this, you know, like, call it cancel culture, call it whatever you want. Social right. justice with a capital right. S, capital J, not like, yeah. like, like the movement of social justice, not right. actual social justice. Yes. Um, you know, there is nothing like that. There is no redemption. There is no salvation. There is mm-hmm. no grace and there is no heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I it and it is very, very, very dogmatic. Like you were saying, it's, yes. Um, it's, uh, there's a conference that they're about to release the videos soon. And again, it was James Lindsay and if, uh, Helen Plucklose, Peter Bogosian, and uh, the guy who was filming their documentary, Mike Nana. And there was, a, I believe, one or two evangelical Christians with them because this stuff is coming into the evangelical church. And I see James Lindsay post this stuff on Twitter and it's uh, belief in Christ is white supremacy because Christ was a Middle Easterner, not a white person. And like... The oh social justice, yeah. The social justice is getting into the evangelical church in like certain parts of like the Baptist mm-hmm. churches in the mm-hmm. south of the states. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay. I look at it. I'm reading it. I look at it. You know, coming from a, you know, okay. And I didn't really have a strict background, but you know, like the tradition was. And I, that's it, exactly what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't see how other more people. I, maybe you have to come from that strict background to realize what it is. I don't know. I, I feel sometimes, too, that there is somewhat um, of an age dynamic there, too. So I'm almost 50, and m- most of my life was lived without social media, even without internet, really, mm-hmm. um, but certainly without Twitter and Facebook. Um, and the many of the folks, most of the folks that I've come across really wielding that club um, a social warrior or a social justice uh, club. Uh, they're quite a bit younger. Like lots of them are in their twenties and thirties. And um, I, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I just find the older people uh, t- tend to take a step back uh, from uh, it. Yes and no. Um, okay. I find it's more okay. I, th- I think there's a crossover from later 
from younger millennials and older Gen Zs. Hmm. Okay. And I think it's because the oldest millennial right now is having college age kids. So, you know, 41, 42, that's technically hmm. the oldest millennial. Um, the youngest ones are like, I guess, late twenties type of thing. Okay. Maybe, maybe 30. I don't know. Like I'd have to look at the exact dates, but so that's why I'm saying it's probably people who are like 35 to 25. Mm. Uh, and this, okay, this is just, I'm just giving you uh, 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 an anecdotal thing here that I heard someone else talking about because I don't have, a, I don't know a lot of Gen Z's. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, like, okay, myself, I, I just turned 50, right? So. Uh, Yay, how <laughs> is it? Tell me it's great. <laughs> whatever. I felt absolutely no different. Um, I'm, I'm still the same old crank I was when I was 49, so. You. <laughs> but, but yeah, so, but, but uh, it was actually a, uh, Again, someone uh, you know on social media, but she was on Joe Rogan, uh, Bridge Bridge of Fantasy, and she was saying all the Gen Zs that she knows because she's from a large family, and these are all her nieces and nephews. Okay. They are using triggered as in, yeah, you know, like just like to take the term triggered. They're using it just like as jokingly, like you know, like like but like you know, someone who's seriously using the word triggered, like oh my god, you triggered me, this and that. And it could be over the most minor thing, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the younger Gen Z, so let's say the 18 and younger type of thing, mm-hmm. are using it more like, oh my God, she was triggered. It was so funny. But, you know, like it was just like, oh, she made a she made an ass of herself. She was freaking out. You know, like right. stuff we'd say in the 80s when, you know, uh, you know whatever, I'm going to get canceled. Was, oh my God, she was spazzing out or something. You know, right. like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, I've just triggered so someone. That's where they're using it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but that's what, so, so it's, I think with, with the common, you know, as you become, okay, we're just getting totally off topic here, but whatever, uh, as, as we're, as you're getting on to, um, okay, the, the, when the printing press first came out, oh my God, people are going to become dumber. They're not going to, you know, remember stuff. Oh, you, oh, you can spread lies. You can spread all this. And then Milton wrote Areopagitica. Then, I mean, I'm not saying that was the final straw in it, but the rules of, or the, the, the arguments for free speech with the advent of the printing press and such easy access to information. Like you said, you know, you're, you know, yeah, I didn't grow up with the internet. Neither of us did. Mm-hmm. A lot of millennials didn't either. It's Gen Z that grew up with social media. And even Gen Z, it's only the younger ones that have been in social media their whole lives, right? Right. The older mm-hmm. ones haven't. Um, right. You know, unless you want to count, you know, Friendster or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so... They are, they're figuring out the rules themselves because no one's told them. Like there, there are no rules yet, right? And so, mm-hmm. just as when the printing press came out and stuff, and then, you know, by the time the U.S. Constitution came around, I'm going to use that as a the other time difference. Arguments for free speech had been made. Arguments, you know, so those things were able to be formed. So it took a lot longer because it was harder to spread the information. But now I think. The usage of it is, I mean, it's everywhere. Everyone's using it, and or more or less. Uh, and so we're coming up with how to do this. And I think that younger, you know, like I said, the Gen Z generation, they're the ones who are really going to figure this stuff out to some extent. But we can't stifle anything. Like, okay, if they come up with a thing that's saying, okay, you, you know what, we can't have completely free speech. I mean, there was a thing right now, it was like something like 60% of the U.S. Uh, said that they would want limits on speech and punishment for hate speech. 
mm-hmm. which I think is absolutely insane, but whatever. Uh, you know, it's, that's the way it's set up, right? So if they, if that's the way they're going to do it, but up until the point that, like, we can't make that decision now and then try to roll it back, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, let's have this conversation. Like, you know, like I said, I brought up the book Areopagitica, which, again, is one of the best defenses for free speech, but it was written specifically about the printing press. Maybe we need an Areopagitica 2.0 for the rules of free expression and any limits thereof on an open forum like the internet where, again, information is so easy to get out. Sorry, I rambled for yeah. a bit there. Uh, that, that I think that is a book that uh, you should start writing immediately. Oh, good Lord, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> no way qualified for that. It's, uh, yeah, it's true. The things that you're saying, they're... We're living in interesting times, and technology does um, evolve faster than ethics, it seems. And so the young people then who are kind of in this wild west that you're describing, their landscape looks much different from the landscape you and I grew up in. There, There almost is no nuclear family anymore. The way that it used to be when we how we used to picture families uh, when i was growing up in the 70s a a mom a dad and two or three kids and a dog that sort of thing Mm -hmm. things have changed and even people are so much more um invested and involved in social media and in with cell phones texting all the time i feel i do worry about uh, children sometimes um not having the same attention from their parents as people our age had yeah it's so it's it is different and you're right they're trying to navigate it and i feel like this is the way humans go this is the way i go i go all the way to the right and i go all the way to the left and i'm constantly searching searching for that elusive middle middle ground sometimes i land on it it's very exciting for me but lots of times i have a hard time finding it yeah um okay i want to just curious about this like do you like when you're working with people, um, let's say it's someone who's older uh, mm-hmm. and they aren't on a social media as much and mm-hmm. someone who's younger is on it a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you notice a difference in how they deal and how they cope? Like, or is, you know, like I'm just wondering if, if it's ever anything like that's ever come up for you or if it's, you know, it, it, it must make some difference. I don't know. Well, I would say, um, Loneliness is common in every generation, uh, but and so the elderly are quite lonely, and uh, youth can also be quite lonely and feel really isolated. Um, there definitely is a difference. Some things I think are really very good about uh, millennials and the younger generation, like they're they're seeking after knowledge and they have more knowledge available right at their fingertips than we've ever had before as a human race. Uh, And there does seem to be a lot of um, caring about other people. Even the whole idea of the the social justice mentality, um, there's great beauty in that, in caring, caring about other people on this planet. But when we we can twist things and take things so far that common sense has has gone out the window. And that doesn't do people any good either. And they're just not sure, well, I, am I even allowed to think this? Am I allowed to have this thought? 
and the the thought policing comes in and that's very much a part of fundamentalism it certainly was a part of my um growing up where we would even have uh accountability groups and so you're you know if you'd had a if you'd had a lustful thought or a person had looked at porn or anything like that boy you better share that in your accountability group and that's not healthy to not be allowed to think your own thoughts we all have to have the privacy to yeah. think our own thoughts and figure things out yeah no i mean that's just it like that's i, I don't know it's again okay this the social media thing because it's i mean it comes up a lot and it's uh, sorry, we're, okay. like, let's take a group like Footsteps. Um, I don't know. I'm sure you've heard of them. Right. In uh, the, in New York. Yeah. In New York city. Now mm-hmm. they have a social media presence. Um, you know, there's oh, ex-Muslims in North America. Um, I'm sure there's, I don't know of, you know, ex-evangelical groups, but I see like, you know, on Twitter hashtags and stuff like that. So I know yeah. there's groups mm-hmm. and these things are great and they're helpful and it's, it's awesome. So social media, you know, like, like I'm not suggesting anyone would say, okay, don't use social media or only use social media, but it's like, you know, too much of it. And like, I see it a lot with, uh, new ex Muslims mm. and I it just, okay, I'm not disparaging anyone here, but sometimes it's, it, I snicker a little bit just because it's, it reminds me of when I see converts, mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're so they're, yeah, they're so zealous. But I see like new ex-Muslims. It's just like, oh my god, uh, I have to defend this, and it's and it's great. Okay, get out there. You're getting a lot of frustration out, you know. But <laughs> but it's like okay. Then they start getting hit with a lot of attacks and everything. I don't think they were expecting that, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. There's a okay. There's it's in Christianity and it's also in. Um, Islam. I mean, Christianity, you probably heard it in like the fundamentalist things. Um, just give me a second. I'm going to pick it up here. I have it written down. Um, uh, Narrow is the way which leadeth into the life. And then in yes. Islam, you have a thing called the Sirat al-Mustaqim, which is the straight path or the narrow path. And mm-hmm. that's the path that you have to walk to get to heaven. If you stray off that, that's it. And, but on all sides, you know, like, yeah, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, but I'm beset on all sides by you know, wickedness and like, you know, it's, it's that idea. You're triggering me. Yeah. But, <laughs> sorry. but I mean, I, I joke that like, okay. And it's, I get it, And I'm not trying to, you know, like play this game of oppression, but you can criticize evangelicalism and you'll mainly only get criticism from evangelicals, right? You won't get right. it from mainstream media, whatever, but an ex-Muslim criticizing Islam it's like they have to walk now. They left an Islamic Surat al-Muslim. Now they have to walk a uh, a woke one, a red pilled one, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. a, a conservative. Like it's 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 crazy. It's just like like you said. Okay, can I say this? Can I not say this? Um, you know, you're young and like now you say something on Twitter and you might not get a job anymore, and yes. you got to worry about that kind of stuff. So like, yeah. like I, that's the kind of things I'm wondering if that's like like that's got to have an effect on you if you've already left something so fundamental you're trying to find your way now mm-hmm. and you're being forced into something else you're being trying to be pigeonholed into something else fundamental i mean that's got to uh, affect people yes and i have uh not only tremendous respect but very genuine concern um for people who are brave enough 
to choose their own path away from um, away from Islam because the price can be dire. Like, I mean, when we leave Christianity, it is painful and we lose community and it's really awful. But I do not, I don't fear for my life. Um, and I know some people, uh, when they've left being a Muslim, the price that they pay can be their life. So I feel like that is really significant. And we have to be able to think for ourselves. And while it is, it can be helpful to share as we're grieving, because you do grieve when you lose your faith, if it's been such a big part of your life. Uh, and so the temptation is to overshare and blurt it out and tell everybody. Not everybody is safe to share your journey with. People are in different mental spaces, different emotional spaces. Uh, so, you know, caution sometimes uh, is an appropriate word to use. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's not like I give advice or anything, but, you know, the, the few times people have asked me, and it's just like, you know, it's like the first thing I always say is, you know your own situation. You know, mm -hmm. Like, I can never judge for you the danger you might put yourself in. So I said, that's, you're going to have to judge for that. You're first. But I always said it's, you know, I never looked at it as losing faith. I looked at it as gaining a better perspective or a fresher yes. perspective. I love it. Um, I'm like, okay, I've gained something. I haven't lost anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but I also tell them that it's, you know, like, okay, living, especially if you're living a double life, I said, you know, the, yes. you feel so much better. Uh, yes, it might be hard at start and it might be difficult, uh, but whatever, long is the way and hard is the path out of hell. <laughs> 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 you know, but like it's, it, but it's worth it in the end because it's, I don't know. I mean, they, like it, that gets too much for me. Like I said, you know, like, like having to do that just was, that was, you know, I, I couldn't, and that's that. I found that so tough. Well, can you tell me um, if there is a, a big difference, like in in Christianity uh, and particularly uh, evangelicalism? You are very much encouraged to develop a personal personal relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I mean, He's to be the master of your life. You you pray to Him, and you really believe that you are talking to a person, the person of, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's where much of our loss comes in. When we do walk away from that, it's like waking up from something that actually wasn't real in the first place. Uh, is it is it similar um, in Islam? Do people, are you encouraged to have a personal relationship with Allah? Well, no, because... Uh... <sighs> Allah is not a person, right? Okay, okay. Um, it's, you know, the unknown, the unseeable, right? It's the unknowable. Uh, so, like, before Jesus, so, I mean, like, the Old Testament, Yahweh. Mm -hmm. That's Allah, right? Okay. So, you worship him, you glorify him, uh, respect him, obey him, mm. you know, whatever, you know, like, if you want to go to the Marvel movies, the All-Father, right? Like... <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, but so it's more of um, because it is so close knit. Everything is so close knit, right? It's 
everything's about the community. Everything's all revolves around that. And it's, I mean, again, it depends on how strict everyone is. And even in the strict ones, they'll adhere to some things, but they might not have heard, heard of something else or, you know, someone from someone living in Saudi and someone living in Bangladesh, but they're both, both, you know, very, very strict families, but they've picked up something of the Bangladeshi culture. So right. that's not allowed here, but it has no impact in Saudi Arabia. So that wouldn't even be a, you know, like, but, right. but, 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 but there's like, you know, like I'll give you an example. You're supposed to walk into your house and every room of your house with your right foot first, except for the washroom. You walk in with your left foot first because the left is the things that are dirty. And now it's a very, wow. very idiosyncratic, you know, OCD thing to do, right? <laughs> but it's there and it's, so, I mean, it, it can't control it down to that little level, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's, what you what you're giving up is well no longer have control you no longer have or not not a control you no longer have answers everything you were told is not true um you gave up a chunk of your life mm-hmm. yes in, so those parts are the same yeah. those parts yeah. are similar um but there is no i mean i'm sure there are people who think they have a very personal and special relationship like i you know, I can, you know, like, my sample size is very small in this, like, uh, no, but no, but like I said, it's, um, but it's, like, I've never heard anyone express that exact feeling, like, I have a very personal, but, like, they take it very personally, and they take it, like, my mom is very, very devout, and she prays, but, I mean, but she's not fundamentalist, and she, you know, she doesn't wear the hijabs, I've never seen my mom wear the hijab in her life, okay. only when she prays does she cover her hair, right. um, but yeah, it's not. Um, it's not like I like I said. It's but I've never heard her use that expression, and I've never heard anyone use that expression. Like you know, like, like I don't know what you mean. Like oh, I have a personal, re- like you know, mm-hmm. or even like finding Jesus or putting Jesus right. in your life, right? Like I never heard it put that way. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I've never, never, I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I will say um, <laughs> one thing that all humans seem to have in common, regardless of our background is that we have a strong dislike for ambiguity. And so rules uh, feel quite safe to us uh, to some degree. And when we, are, when we are children and we don't have an understanding of how things work, it, obedience is terribly important. Our lives can depend on it. Um, but then some of us, so as I mentioned, I grew up in a home with a narcissist, emotionally volatile father. And... Um, following rules was very important in our house because it could prevent you from being punished right um and sometimes yeah what being with emotionally volatile people can be a dangerous situation to be in and that's where my real love of rules developed i felt very safe with rules if i could know and understand the rules uh, i could follow them and avoid punishment and so I really gravitated very much towards um, rules. And I feel bad for my children because certainly our home was quite rule-oriented um, uh, until I deconverted and all hell <laughs> broke loose. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, yeah, everybody seems to have that bit in common. We, we don't really like ambiguity. Now, of course, I see the world in varying shades of gray and every other color. Yeah, I mean, it's but that's one thing I've, like... With the, with the rules and all that, it's just you know, and you mentioned before, like people will not—they maybe have left that flavor of fundamentalism, but 
then they're fundamentalist about something else, right? Yeah, still quite rigid. Yeah, mm-hmm. And it's just it's it's that rigidity that I think, um, like it's that rigidity that you need to get rid of, and that's why sometimes I have an issue with some of the um, okay, like like Dawkins. I'll give him a him as a prime example. Mm-hmm. Very much, like, you know, it's, this is, again, this is not a slight against him or anything like that, but it's that strident thing, right? Okay, you know, the, the, the way Dennett says, you want to break the spell. So, yes, fine, you can disprove all of that. But once you've disproved it, you haven't gotten rid of the thought pattern that made it possible for them to believe it. So mm-hmm. then you're just leaving them prey to something else, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be something as benign as the, you know, the the law of attraction. Which I mean, maybe it's not so benign, but you know what I mean. Right. Like, yeah. You know, but, or crystals or something. You know, like yes. And it's, you know, and some people say, okay, the law of attraction isn't really you know rigid. But I've seen some of their videos where they said, if you know, if people in your life don't believe in this, cut them out of your life, and it's that's very cult like. You know, yes, like, um, and there can be a lot of blaming too about if you get sick. Yeah. You and you've allowed sickness. You brought that sickness yeah. uh, on yourself. Yeah, um, or you didn't. You didn't. You know, put the correct uh, wishes out into the universe. I, I think they yes. call it like, oh, you put it out in the vortex or something stupid like that. Um, yeah, but so that's what I mean. Like, I respect Dawkins, and I, I respect the idea of okay, prove that. Yes, you can prove that. You know, this like that's something out of the the, the Quran that the sperm is formed between the ribs and the backbone. Yes, scientifically, you can prove that. That's false. But by proving it false, have you really shown the person how to think? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, <laughs> that's where I have some issue with some of the more, you know, strident, oh, just break the spell and that's it. Then they'll be on their own and they can figure right. it out. It's like... It's well, only half the story. Yeah. And I feel like uh, as humans, in a way, we're hardwired for laziness. Where, you know, evolutionarily, we want to get from A to B in the most efficient manner uh, possible. And so, actually having to learn critical thinking skills, is it takes effort. It requires energy. Yeah. And when you're used to just sitting there and being fed everything by your minister or your imam or whatever the deal is, and you you have all the rules there, and you know, okay, I can think this, but I can't think that. So you're almost kept in an infantile state. Uh, and really, maturity is when we're able to release the rigidity and the black and white thinking and be able to measure and weigh things and say, you know what, some of this might make sense, some of it doesn't make sense. I'm going to explore. I'm going to research and investigate uh, rather than just have a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, you said that, so that makes you a racist. You know, there, things are things are nuanced and complex, but we want simple answers. That's just the way we are. Yeah. And I, okay, I've been trying to, I've been playing around with this idea for a little bit and uh, I've, you know, I've, I've given the example to a couple of people and I said, okay, and I've said this a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever, you know, free speech is the foundation that we built all our other rights off of, right? Or the free speech is the foundation for where we get all our other rights. And I don't disagree with that except for the foundation part. I, for the last maybe couple of years, I'm thinking it's not a foundation, a foundation is firm and rigid and you have to build a structure around it 
And once that structure is built, like you build your house on your foundation, you'll forget about your foundation until it cracks. You won't mm-hmm. think once about it, right? You'll think about your yeah. walls and the, you know, the framing and the gyp wrong. Yeah. You'll, you'll think about all that. You'll forget the foundation because who cares? And that's fundamentalism. That's, you know, that side of the thinking. I said, okay, if you want to think of a free and open society, I said, think of it like a garden. The earth is there. It's strong enough to support, you know, an orchard's a garden, right? So it'll support a tree. You add the nutrients to it. You take care of it. It's very easy to adjust and it's very easy to lose, but you have to constantly look after it. You're always aware of where everything that you have comes from if you think of it as a garden and not as a foundation. Um, There's a really good book by David Deutsch called The Beginning of Infinity, and he talks about how we gain knowledge, and he talks about dynamic thinking and static thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, the Enlightenment is dynamic thinking. Fundamentalist faith is static thinking. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think, you know, as people, you know, again, like take someone like a Dawkins, if he added a little bit on, I mean, he, he talks about free expression. And he talks about the scientific method. And he tells you what it is, but he doesn't really go past that. Like it's a very, very, you know, very surface level. Like it's just a thin veneer of everything that's underneath it. Mm. And I mean, it, like if you want to get first people, step. Yeah, it's a first step. But if you want to get people out of you know, religion, or if you want to get people out of dogma, right? Just don't shatter it and give them, okay, well, then you need to think critically. And this is, this is the scientific method where you come up with an idea, you test it, and then you prove it. And that's how you should do everything. And then just walk away. Cause yeah, like I said, if you give them at least an idea of, okay, look for this kind of thinking, thinking that's it's, it's, it, it's moves. And then, okay, you know what? I have like, go back to the garden thing. Okay. I'm using this kind of fertilizer. I'm using this, 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 and this. If I add this to it, will it make it better or will it hurt it? I can put it in one little area and not damage everything else, but you can't do that with a foundation, right? Mm -hmm. You have to. So I've been like, we're just trying to like, I was just, it was just me playing thought games. And like I said, speaking with a few people about it, like trying to get them to say, okay, just think, change the way you think about the base for which you build everything else on. Mm -hmm. Because if your base is rigid and firm and it's not going to change, what good is it? That, yeah, I, I like your garden uh, metaphor. I think it's quite beautiful. Um, All I have to do is add a mustard seed. <laughs> no, no, anything but that. Um, uh, one of the things that I've done since I divorced religion is I developed the Divorcing Religion Workshop. And the very last module of that workshop is called Mind Control. Don't let an old flame burn you twice. And in that module, we we look at um, you know some of the things that, that represent fundamentalist thinking or fanatical thinking, um, and you know the different steps that it took us to get there, like the different levels of attachment, kind of right till you're to the point where something totally has gripped you, instead of it was once just an interesting idea to you. Um, and that module is specifically in there to try and help people navigate as they move forward without religion so that they don't fall back into fundamentalist thinking. Because you're right, it's it's not just enough to say, well, that's baloney. Uh, you, <laughs> you, have to, you have to help people along the way. And my job as a therapist... Uh, I am definitely not interested in 
robbing anyone of their faith or taking people out of the church, anything like that. My, The way that I see my role is I'm there catching people. I'm a net underneath. When those church doors open and the people find themselves somehow on the other side of their faith that had once been dear to them, uh, I'm there to catch them and say, you're not alone. There are other people who've come through this who have lost their what was a very cherished faith and worldview. Um, and let's walk through this together. Well, actually, I'm glad you brought up your workshop because I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, mm-hmm. So how long have you been doing this? Uh, well, I started my own counseling practice in 2016, I think, maybe the end of 2015. Um, and then it took me a couple of years really to firmly determine my niche, which for me is um, working with people who ha- have religious trauma syndrome, say. And uh, I, that came about uh, by, of course, my own experience, but then coming across Dr. Marlene Winnell. I don't know if you've heard of her. She Actually, wrote a one. Yeah, I, I spoke with her um a couple of years back. I, oh, terrific. Yeah. yeah. So her book is Leaving the Fold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's the one that coined the phrase religious trauma syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Should I explain that for your sure. listeners? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Okay. So according to Dr. Winnell, religious trauma syndrome is a function of both the chronic abuses of harmful religion and the impact of severing one's connection with faith and the faith community. So I look at it as there were lots of things I had to give up or that I shut myself off to in order to be in my tight fundamentalist group. And then when I left that group, I had other losses that I had to contend with on the other side. Um, So it's quite a big, and it's a real shock to the system to suddenly discover, oh my God, everything I base my life on, everything uh, is not true it's not what i thought it was and then you're left with thinking can i even trust myself ever again what if there are other things that i think are true and they are not true and it takes it's exhausting and you go through a real time of grieving but it's grief that's not recognized by the world at large if people have never been religious they don't really have any understanding of it they just think of so what you don't believe in santa claus anymore but when your life has been based on it and also if it's cultural for you, if it's the country that you come from and the culture that you come from, this is the belief that everyone must have. There are some, there's a lot uh, that you can lose with that. So uh, I'm there to help people explore uh, those losses, the reaction to those losses, but also what life can look like going forward because you're entering a time of tremendous potential as you're waking up to the possibility of life beyond religion. Yeah. I mean, okay, that's, and one of the things I find is, um, and again, like I said, you know, small people, small number of people I speak with, it's just, people get angry and then they're, and then they're worried about the fact that they're angry. I'm like, you know what? Okay. Look, anger, regret, sadness, fine. You know, you can say they're like people that, although those are their negative emotions, I'm like, it's how you react to them. That's going to be, make them negative or positive. Right. Mm-hmm. You can, take that anger and that regret and do something good with it. So if you are angry and you're regretful, you're, you're angry at the fact that you were never allowed to travel because of, you know, the faith you were brought up in right. and you regret everything that you missed doing as a, you know, a teenager or, in, right. or you know, up until your mid twenties. 
and you're like, you know, 50 now, well, hell, go travel. You know, mm-hmm. like use use that anger to, you know. To fuel change. Yeah, or, or to, you know, yeah, push yourself to, okay, I need to save like five grand and I'm going to go on this trip and then whatever. Like, yes, okay, you can regret not doing it and you can you can wallow in it or you can say, you know what, I missed out on all this stuff. I'm going to take advantage of what I've time I've got now and go do it. I mean, like that's, you know, and especially if you're young, like, yes. you know, I wanted to sing and I was never allowed to sing. Okay, fine. Go sing, go take singing mm-hmm. lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're, even if you suck, who cares? Go do it. You know, yeah. like, go stand yeah. on top of a bridge and like, you know, belt your heart out. <laughs> like, preach, like, man, preach. Yeah. No, but I mean like, like, <laughs> I, like, I don't know. Like I find some, and again, like, you know, like, I'm not a, I, I never to tell, you know, I never put myself out as there as a therapist. I'm not like an, a person to give out, you know, I'm not, you know, come, come for, to me for advice or anything, but if I've ever asked, I was just like, always like, don't, you know, get angry. If you're angry, be angry, but like do something with it. You know, yeah. like don't just. I think that a lot of people get tripped up on anger, particularly if they've come out of a, a background that has um, taught them that anger is wrong and anger is simple and you're not allowed to be angry. That can really cause trouble for people then when they're, they've left that belief system and they're feeling the weight of this tremendous anger. Maybe they've spent $50,000 on an education at a, at a seminary, you know, at some religious school, maybe they were even a pastor. Now they don't believe they don't have, and they don't have a job and they don't have a way to support their family. Um, anger is a legitimate part of grief. It really is. But we don't want to get stuck there. So we can acknowledge it uh, and use it as fuel to build our new life. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I, you know, again, just little things I've seen. Uh, I'm just curious. Do you notice, because I used to host a podcast um, with two ex-Muslims from Australia, and then just the logistics got far too complicated. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, but we focused on, so we spoke with like um, ex-Mormons. Actually, Jen was really uh, very, very unique because she was ex-Mormon, but she had some, a side of her family that were Syrian Muslims. And wow. so she would spend summers with them. So she got kind of brought up in both faiths. But 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 she was Mormon, and then when she grew up, and as she was like in her late teens, she married a fundamentalist Muslim, and she became a very fundamentalist Muslim and moved Whoa. to Pakistan. And then now yeah. she's I, I call her like I, I tell her she's an ex M and M because she's an ex Muslim and ex Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, but yeah, so sorry, I really get off. So yeah, that's I mean I, we spoke with like ex Jehovah's Witnesses, a couple of ex Evangelicals and stuff, and it was just to point out the similarities. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know. Yeah, obviously the doctrines are the same, but the shunning was, you know, okay. Everyone, okay, the, the the idea of being shunned, cut off from your family, um, uh, like Mormons had, um, which we call it, uh, called blood atonement, where they would actually mm-hmm. kill apostates, and I think Jen said that went on until about the thirties. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, there there was a lot of similarities and stuff. I mean, it's like, like what are the commonalities you see when you speak to people coming from different, like you know, faith traditions and stuff. I mean, even in Christianity, there'd be slight differences, I think. That Well, that uh, example uh, you just gave of that lady who went from Mormonism to Islam is, it's interesting, and I don't actually think it's all that uncommon because they're, they kind of 
they hate each other with the hatred of brothers, right? It's a familiar thing, fundamentalism, those harsh, harsh rules, give me those rules. So my rules were different in this faith, but they were equally uh, strong and strident as they are in this other faith over here. So you're kind of, you're switching camps, but you're still in that fundamentalist um, uh, Actually, uh, uh, in the Mormon Islam thing, okay, at least this is coming from Jen, and so that's my background on that but she said joseph smith admired muhammad and you know the the four wives thing the 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 polygamy in in mormonism there was a lot of stuff that they admired in uh in the islamic faith in and of itself even if it's okay it's not the true faith but certain aspects of it they liked so it was for her, it was a lot of similarity. So, like you know, going from a Mormon mm-hmm. household, you know, covering up and dressing like that, a lot of se- you know, a lot of segregation. Yes. Going to a, a Muslim household mm-hmm. and having the same thing, so she could see a, a closeness in a relationship in that as well. But yes. she, but like I said, she she did it because she wanted to marry someone, and like she converted before she married the person. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. She right. she, she met the guy I think a year or two after she she converted. So, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah, the loss of relationships. Um, and community is probably uh, the strongest theme that I see echoing through all the various backgrounds of my of my clients coming from diverse um, fundamentalist backgrounds. Um, so, uh, speaking for evangelicalism or Christianity, church is your one stop shop. You go there, you have your emotional needs met, your spiritual needs met, your psychological needs met. People are looking after your children. If you if something goes wrong, if you lose your job, people are helping you financially. Like you feel that it's truly a community. They really mm-hmm. have your back until they don't. Until you ask a question, the wrong question, or you start thinking the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So then to find yourself on the outside of that community no longer welcome. Um, it's a very daunting situation to look at having to rebuild your life because your life now is going to look more like a patchwork quilt. You have to develop new communities in all these different areas. And again, it requires work. It is mm. hard work and there's no way around it. There's no shortcut. Um, so it's a lot to, to grapple with and to deal with and it can take years. So that's why it's important to uh, have interactions with other people who can relate to where you're coming from. Okay, you're in Kelowna right now. I mean, I I lived in Vancouver for five years, and this is going back a while now. So 86, I did, there was a thing called uh, Exchange Canada, and it was a high school student exchange thing. So I spent Mm -hmm. six weeks in Summerland, actually. Oh, (laughs) that's so funny. Uh, So yeah, so I mean, I know the area a little bit, but... I, I've lived in a small town. I'm in Montreal now, but uh, from 2014 to 2018, I was in northern Quebec in a remote little Inuit community. Wow. So the church in the small town, right? Or let's say you're in New York City and you're in a, a Hasidic Jewish community. You're you're in the middle of you know one of the biggest cities in the world, mm-hmm. but you're isolated. You know? Yes. So, like, growing up in a small town where the church is that, right? Like it is everything. Mm-hmm. And then you're growing up, like, you know, like I said, Hasidic Jew, 
or you know even very very strict Muslim or something in a very enclosed city a community in a large city mm. like I said I mean you're doing business only with your kind you're mm. you know you don't know where to go buy meat because the halal meat shop or the kosher meat shop in your neighborhood won't sell to you anymore right 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 you don't know mm. where to I mean not that halal or kosher should matter at that point but you know, it's 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 what you knew. So it's yes. And then I can see that in a small town as well. It's everything. And then in a small town, you know, everyone knows everything. I mean, you have to pick up and leave. I guess at one point, depending on how bad it is. So, right. do you notice like differences between where people come from and where they are living when they left, or is that like you know, like sorry, I mean, I mean, this might be like a leading question because I gave a big <laughs> intro to it, but um, a lot of people, I think do end up having to leave if they're if they're in a smaller community and and they now find themselves thinking in a larger way um, it's very tough if your entire community is entrenched in a specific mindset so um, larger city centers can seem a lot more appealing than you have a way better chance of being able to find a community build your own communities that you'll fit with better and it's so hard when if you're married and you deconvert uh, or deconstruct and your spouse remains a believer and then you add children into that mix it is intensely painful it for both parties it's confusing it's very difficult there are many people who feel that it's just easier to stay silent to keep going through the motions, keep going to the church, keep you know singing the songs, all this stuff, even though they haven't believed it. And there are certainly ministers, like the Clergy Project, right, set yeah. up for people who exactly have found themselves in that um, position. And I'm so glad the Clergy Project exists so that these people can at least have someone to talk to who understands. Um, and the same, it's not the same for everybody. And there's not necessarily a right way to deconvert. What, how, how it happened for me was I had a series of tragedies befall my family in a, a very short amount of time. And that the pain of that shook me free from my cognitive dissonance. And I finally stuck my head up out of the ground and thought, something is not right here. Now, I've tried so hard to, to be the best possible Christian and follow all the rules, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, and and I'm just stuck in this shit storm here, uh, pretty much. And um, so that at that point, that made me think I've bet on the wrong horse. Something isn't right about this situation. And then I allowed myself to start exploring outside. Yeah, I mean, okay, like the something you mentioned in there, the you know, am I being the right kind of? you know, X, whatever, right? Right. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across the term takfir. Mm-mm. Okay, so takfir is um, how to be a good Muslim. So they'll 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 have takfir on, you know, like it's just interpretation, like there, there, there's a couple of different things, but takfir is like, uh, so there's a group called tablighis, which you can kind of think of them like as evangelicals, but one of the things they do is they go to Muslim households and tell them people how to be the proper type of Muslim. Right? Yes, that happens in Judaism as well. Okay, so that's like that's what takfir is, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, and I'm, I'm glossing this over very, very hugely here. Um, uh, but then I notice it in 
you know, with ex-Muslims. And there's like this ex-Muslim took fear. Like you're not ex-Muslim uh, correctly. I'm like, yeah. what? Yes. I'm like, yes. no, that's, what do you mean? That's that whole fundamental <laughs> mindset again. I'm like, no. You know, you're or, doing it wrong. Yeah, and, and like some of them, I'll, I'll, you're like, Yo, why don't you want to have a drink? You have to have a drink. I'm like, don't have to do anything. I left that because I didn't want to be told what I have to and don't have uh-huh. to do. You know, like, yeah. okay. And that, that's a very silly, stupid example, obviously. Right. But it's still, I mean, it's like you get that, like, oh, why are you speaking to that person? You're not, you know, and that's again, part of that, like cancel culture type of thing. But it's, yeah. you know, why are you speaking to that person? You know, you shouldn't because uh, you're going to hurt the, this cause or that cause or you're hurt. Right. It's like, like I said, I left because I didn't want any of that. Exactly. Right? So, Yo, and if if you were opposed to that, then why are you trying to enforce it now? And it's right. just like I said, it's you know, I, I again, it's you know, I, we're I think going to be beating a dead horse here, but the, 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 that like I said, leaving that mindset, like I, and that's something that comes up um, in my workshop because people uh, are in various states of. Uh, deconversion like some some people by the time they take my workshop they've already they're an atheist they're pretty hardcore atheists some people agnostic you know some people are they're kind of feeling around in new age and i get it because when i left christianity i took up crystals grew my dreadlocks you know oh got my tattoos all these kinds of things like so cliche Mm. uh but it was all part of me it was all part of my journey and getting to the place where I am now. So in our in the workshop, and people, I have people who were formerly Catholic, formerly Orthodox uh, Jewish, former Evangelicals. There's all sorts of groups, uh, and they come to terms because we meet each other face to face on online once a week, uh, and we're each sharing our journey and where we're at now and where we've come from. And so it's also about listening you know with compassion you might you 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 might be thinking wow you're you're putting your faith in crystals that's that's hooey uh but there's a way that we can ask questions respectfully and also to listen respectfully and just see that's where they are on their journey right now they probably won't stay there i mean our goal is to keep evolving and growing in this life um, yeah, but it, to to insist that people, <laughs> yeah, you you have to have a drink now. Um, no, they really don't. Yeah. Okay, there's one thing I was wanting to really, like, like I said, I don't never really kind of set an agenda, but I wanted to ask you about this uh, meaning, right? So, faith is a meaning making exercise. It's something you know it gives my life meaning, right? And um, that's one thing. Like, okay. Once you leave, okay, I have to find the meaning for my life. Uh And I'm like, okay, you know, let's go back to the Carl Sagan thing. Like, you know, if you want your life to have some cosmic purpose, find yourself a worthy goal, right? Like your life, a life well lived is its own meaning, right? Like, I mean, if you grow up small town, wherever, I don't care. You know, you live an average life, go on a couple of vacations a year, raise a family and some kids. Don't do anything earth shattering. But that in itself is its own meaning. Like, I, I find that's a one, oh, that gave me meaning. That gave my life meaning. I have to find that meaning again. It's like, no. I don't think, like, I, I think that external locus to find meaning is one of the biggest problems and, like, one of the biggest hurdles. And I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if I'm making too much of it or whatever. I think it can be a big trap 
and a, and a lot of pressure. And the fact of the matter is, it's extremely individual. Like you said, to some people, just you know, be, it, raising a family that's that is what gives them meaning. And then they have to adjust once their children grow up and and leave home. And then they're just kind of waiting for grandkids. Mm-hmm. And then they can speak into the lives of their mm-hmm. grandchildren. But things don't always turn out that way. And um, you, we have to have a degree of flexibility to be able to roll with the changes, to recover when things don't go our way. Um, my The way that I give meaning to my life right now, at this stage in my life, is by uh, helping other people. And so I draw on the background that I've come from. Uh, and that allows me to uh, to be there for other people. I don't know, ten years from now, what what will be meaningful to me, other than I I do love my children. I love life. I love learning, and living, and growing. And that's just such a broader way to look at it than to have one meaning or purpose. Yeah, and that's just what it, like that's what I mean. Like I, I I never understood that. I mean, I don't think I ever really understood that at all like oh you have to have the meaning you have to find a meaning for your life i'm like it's it's a little narrow <laughs> i mean it's yeah yeah and and i've i've uh, heard it said that the the meaning of life is to give life meaning and yeah. that is so individual open yeah. to interpretation for yeah. everybody yeah it's just but yeah it's a like i said it gets a little nutty um i don't want to keep <laughs> I don't want to get, keep you too, too long here. Uh, I know you've got that conference coming up and everything, but if, you, if there's stuff you want to talk about or if you've got things going on or anything you want to talk about, feel free, please. Okay. I would like to uh, talk just a little bit about the, the conference. I'm pretty excited about it. It's uh, You may have run into it online, Court 2020, the Conference on Religious Trauma, and it's being held in 2020. That's why the hashtag is Court 2020. Uh, It's being held in Vancouver, BC. And this is uh, the inaugural event. It's the first of its kind, a conference focusing on religious trauma. And we have experts uh, in the field, including Dr. Marlene Winnell. She's one of our keynote speakers. Uh, Dr. Daryl Ray, the founder of uh, Recovering from Religion and the Secular Therapy Project. Uh, and actually, I'm quite excited to say that the Secular Therapy Project has agreed to uh, become a sponsor of the Conference on Religious Trauma. And I'm just very tickled about that. Um, who else do we have coming? Uh, Dr. Valerie Tarico and Dr. Yanya Lalich. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Lalich. No. She is fascinating. She's a cult specialist in the United States. And uh, I believe the FBI actually consults with her when they have group situations like Waco. Remember that happened in Waco, Uh Texas, all those years ago. Um, She's extremely knowledgeable. Uh, And so she doesn't approach it so much from the religion idea as from the self-sealing group or high control groups Mm. and she looks at what makes those tick so she's our cult expert um and janet heimlich will also be uh joining us Mm. and she's uh, an expert on religious child maltreatment so we'll be looking at uh, childhood indoctrination so those are our keynote speakers i hope i've got everybody in there um and then we also are having uh 
people doing workshops and featured speakers like Yasmin Mohammed. I'm quite excited to have her coming and sharing with us. And Nate Phelps, uh, David Smalley. Uh, we just have so many people who have knowledge to share. And, and we'll also have workshops for therapists. We want therapists to attend and learn about religious trauma and religious trauma syndrome. And we also want people who are in recovery from religious trauma to attend. We'll have lots of therapists there, people able to, to help out, and we'll have some uh, sharing circles and healing circles. I think it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be really good. Okay. Um, anyways, I just have one kind of little, I don't even want to say bone to pick with, but so the conference is April 24th, 25th, and 26th. Correct. You couldn't have moved it up one weekend and kind of like done it on Easter just as a, you know, a little bit of an FU. <laughs> Believe me, believe me, I thought about it. Oh my God. That would be quite the irony. Maybe next year. So, and if people are interested in finding out uh, about the conference, they can go to www.cort2020.com and they can uh, purchase their tickets there and also um, rent their hotel room there because we're having it at a hotel. So I hope that people can make it. And of course, your listeners will receive uh, a coupon code so they can have a discount on their tickets. Yeah, I'll be putting that in the description, but it's DS036. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, well, I mean, okay, is there any place where people can follow you on social media or the conference or anything like that? Or? Sure, they can follow me on Twitter at Divorce Religion. And I'm also on Twitter as at wise underscore counselor. And counselor has two L's being the good Canadian girl that I am. (laughs) They can find me on Facebook as myself, Janice Selby. And I'd love to hear from people. Right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, It was great talking to you. This was uh, really fun. Yeah. And thanks, everyone, for listening. All right. Take care.